welcome back to Fired Up right here on WJMS Radio. This is Steve. I'm your host each week as we get under the hood and look at the mechanics of what makes our political system here in the United States tick. Uh, as with everything today and these days, we are dealing with coronavirus, COVID-19. So we're going to take a look this episode at uh, what the political impacts of this epidemic affecting our country is, how it's impacting how we go about our daily business, in particular, how it's impacting the political realities here in the United States. Uh, One of the things to understand uh, about this, as we have gone through now uh, three months of coronavirus and the United States response to it, the only thing that I can say, and, and unfortunately I have to be truthful and critical, is that this has really been a management failure in terms of how our government has responded to it. And but what I mean by that is, you know, when, when you're managing a, a business, when you're managing a city or a county or a state or a country, uh, one of the things that is the most difficult to do and the most problematic but needs to be addressed in the most honest and straightforward way that you can is what happens when there is a crisis. Uh, in my experience over you know, 40 years of a professional career, I've managed many product projects. I've managed uh, you know, companies. I have my own company for 10 years. And invariably, what will happen is a crisis will occur. Well, when a crisis occurs, and according to every expert of management out there, all of the books that have been written over the years, they talk really about three basic things that you must do in order to effectively manage your way through a crisis. And we're going to look at each of them and address them in the terms of what has transpired here with the coronavirus outbreak here in America. And uh, we'll start that off. The first thing you need to do, you know, as a manager, and lest, lest we forget, you know, the President of the United States is the supreme manager for our country. The first thing you need to do is to own it. You have to step up, fess up, and let the public know that there has been a problem. The second thing you do is you need to speak the factual truth. You need to give the clear, concise, honest facts of the situation, and then follow that with the third thing you need to do is to explain and outline what you plan to do in order to address this crisis. So you do those three things. You own it, you speak the truth about it, and then you explain what your process is going to be to solve it, rinse and repeat. That is the overwhelming mantra you know, from the experts on how you deal with a crisis. So let's, let's break that down in terms of what has transpired here in our country with the crisis of this coronavirus. You know, if you recall, back in January, uh, when the outbreak was already raging in China and had been for, uh, you know, six or eight weeks already, uh, the response here from leadership in our country, in particular, I mean the president, was that this was no big deal, that, you know, there'd be a small number of deaths and, you know, by the spring when the weather gets warmer, this would fade into memory and it would be a miracle and we would have dodged a bullet. Well, 
looking back in hindsight, we can clearly see that that hasn't happened. Uh, you know, the, the numbers began to grow. Hotspots began to appear first in Washington state, and then in California, and then New York, and then other areas of the country, you know, as we have seen in recent weeks, have begun to ramp up and spiral up through the, the, the curve of how this disease uh, impacts and travels and spreads itself in our country. And, you know, although, to be fair, in recent weeks, over the last month or so, the response of the administration has been much improved and much more directed and focused. You know, it, it began with a series of major missteps uh, that really actually put a lot of American people at risk for contracting the disease and, uh, and dying from it. Now, I, I know that's a pretty grim statement to make, but again, you only need to look back over the history of the progress of this disease in our country to see that the facts actually bear this thought out. Uh, we started out with a very small number of you know, people who are infected, and that number has grown exponentially over the last three months to where our latest numbers are that there are 337,000 cases uh, presently in the United States, and that's of as of 6 p.m. on April 5th, on Sunday. And of those, 9,600 or so uh, have actually, uh, they have died from this disease, and 17,000 actually have recovered from it. And, you know, when we talk about the statistics, when you hear about, you know, what's going on with coronavirus, we talk about the number of cases, we talk about the number of people have died, but we don't talk about the number of people that are recovering from this disease, that have gone through it, have come out the other end, and are, you know, getting back to more normal health. Uh, as you expand that view to look at the world, there have been 1.27 million cases of COVID-19 reported, again, as of Sunday, April 5th, uh, in the world. Uh, 69,500 people have died from this disease, and 262,000 plus have recovered from this disease. These people who have recovered uh, are important, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in, in a few seconds. Um, but, you know, when you hear these numbers, the other thing you have to keep in your mind is that acquiring the coronavirus, uh, unless you are in, in one of several high-risk or very high-risk categories, uh, is not majority a, a fatal sentence. Um, you know, the, the majority of people that are contracting this disease uh, there is a significant number of people who actually are recovering from it. And hopefully, as we move through this process, those people who have acquired the disease, have fought it, have beaten it, and have recovered from it, could play a very valuable role in helping us get to you know, a vaccine or a treatment to prevent you know, widespread or more widespread uh, contraction of this, this illness and you know save a lot of lives 
one of the things that you know the the government and the health institutes and our medical professionals are looking at 24 hours a day seven days a week uh, you know is finding a vaccine finding a treatment uh, finding you know potentially a cure or some means of addressing this in the same fashion that we do now with our annual flu shots with our you know uh, inoculations against you know such diseases as measles mumps etc we hopefully one day will get to that stage however the information we have now and again remember we're talking about factual information that comes from the scientific and medical community is that that process that vaccine those treatments are still something between 12 to 18 months away depending on who it is that you're speaking with so you know one of the the first things of you know where we talk about this from a management perspective that was problematic was you know the administration and in particular the president was talking about the imminent availability of a vaccine or you know the availability of drugs that are out there already that can be used to effectively treat this disease one of the things that is not factual about those statements is that those vaccines or those drugs have not been clinically tested specifically on coronavirus uh, patients in any significant quantity in order to determine how well they work what the side effects are you know what the survival rate of the treatment is you know in at least one case with with these medicines that have been announced out there it is you know a a very rough uh, course in terms of the side effects that it causes and in many cases the the medicine can actually be fatal to the patient uh, so that that needs to be verified that needs to be documented it needs to be approved and accepted by the medical community before a vaccine or a treatment uh, can be you know effectively released to the larger public so we've got a ways to go before we get to the stage with coronavirus as we do with the flu where you know there's an annual time you know where you go and you get your flu shot and you know it helps you remain immune to influenza this is going to take some time it's going to require our patience and our perseverance to get to that point so you know again the first thing you got to understand is when you're in the midst of a crisis and you're managing a crisis you have to be honest you have to be factual you can't give false hope you can't give false you know dreams or misstatements or statements that are not based in fact all right so the 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 first area that the administration early on in this process was not successful uh, was in owning that this was a a disease that uh, started as an epidemic in China uh, and began to spread to other countries and become a pandemic which means a disease that you know traverses borders and travels around the world and here we are now you know some uh, four months later five months later with a full-blown global pandemic 
that we that we everywhere on this planet are struggling to mitigate and and defeat. Um, you know, had the administration recognized that this was an epidemic and that its infection path matched very closely what happens with other pandemics that have occurred in the past, such as SARS, such as MRSA, you know, swine flu, the Spanish flu, uh, had those patterns been recognized and addressed, our response as a country would have been a lot faster. Uh, a lot more people would have, you know, been isolated, would have been treated, and potentially uh, could have survived. And, you know, many people who have died from this disease might not have died. Uh, that, that's just the honest truth of it. And, you know, all of the medical professionals uh, have said exactly that, you know, that had our response been more aggressive early on, had we paid heed to that, then, you know, the outcomes where we are now potentially could have been a lot less. You know, another component of this is, you know, when you're managing a project or managing a company uh, or, or such, one of the things you have to do as a manager is you have to look out there into the future and see what are the potential problems and put in place or you know, maintain or strengthen your resources to combat that problem. In this regard, the administration cut the leadership portion of the pandemic prevention uh, and response team at the Centers for Disease Control for no reason um, you know, more than a year ago. You know, it, it really affected how we respond because there were no people at the top of the CDC that uh, had you know, governmental experience in managing a pandemic or a widespread uh, social disease such as coronavirus that could hit our country. Uh, you always need to plan ahead for the good and the bad when you are a manager of any serious nature uh, for a project. So moving to the second part. The second part of that uh, response to a crisis is to speak the factual truth. So, you know, in this situation, uh, the, the truth of what was occurring with the coronavirus pandemic was, you know, sugar-coated or soft-stepped uh, or denied, you know, until the overwhelming facts of what was going on made it impossible for denial to be a defense against doing nothing for this. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, as the disease came to our shores, began to take hold and spread, there was still the messages of this is not a serious thing. You know, we don't need to marshal resources to respond. We don't need to, you know, ramp up and institute measures to increase production of key needed technologies and protective gear and so forth until it became such a huge problem that, you know, it, it was overwhelmingly necessary that these actions needed to be taken. So, you know, one of the, the key things, again, is when you have and you're faced with a crisis as a leader, you need to address it. You need to speak to what the actual facts of the situation are, what, you know, is going on, and you need to speak the plain truth. 
being concerned that you know people are going to a not like you b you know you're going to pay a political penalty or whatever is irrelevant you are talking about saving people's lives as an example of this you know clearly we point to what has has been done by new york governor um, andrew cuomo he has from day one spoken clearly concisely factually he has expressed what it is that his state faces what it is that his state needs to address it who's addressing it what needs to be done Yes, it's going to cost money. I'm not worried about cost of money. I'm worried about saving lives. Contrast that with the responses that have come out of Washington, with the exception of the medical community that now form the Coronavirus Task Force, which, in, in my opinion, have done an exceptional job in managing you know, into this and managing through it and, and, and dealing with it, given the constraints placed upon them by the political machine uh, of Washington, and you know, you you see the clear difference. Now, kudos go out as well to the House of Representatives and the Senate for the yeoman work they did in getting the recovery package uh, drafted, put together, finalized, passed, and given to the president. And kudos to the president for signing it expeditiously, without argument. Uh, it's a good start. It gets us started on the road to what we need to do in order to recover from this disease. But again, this should have been done back in January, February, or even December when the information came out of China that this epidemic existed and had the potential to spread around the world. You know, motion should have been taken. You know, we should have galvanized into action to begin to handle this. Now, we can, you know, look at for the silver lining, we can look out for the silver lining in this and realize that, you know, here is lesson learned. Now we know that should we face another uh, epidemic that has a potential to go pandemic, we now have a roadmap that we have built, tried, tested, and put in place in order to define what it is that we need to do. And hopefully this lesson will not be lost on future leadership uh, so that you know we won't have to go through the nightmare that we are approaching as we try and work our way through the peak of this pandemic's effect on our country. And the third part, as I've said, is you have to mobilize the resources. And this should be done as early as possible. As early as you have a clear definition of what the problem is, you should begin putting your plans in place and putting your teams in place and putting your supply chains in and, and addressing what needs to be done uh, in order to address and correct the problem. You know, once you understand what is going on and what needs to be done in order to solve it, everything needs to be focused by your team in order to make that solution a reality. So you, you have to have you know, your, your supply chains in place. You have to have your distribution. You have to have your chain of command for decisions. You know, and again, you know, the, the administration has done all these things. You know, there is a task force now. It is headed up by Vice President Pence. Uh, and overall, they have done a, a very good job of getting us caught up. 
but we are still behind the, the other countries that are suffering with this illness, particularly China, South Korea, Italy, you know, France, England. You know, we still lag behind them, but we are gaining ground. We are making progress. Um, you know, what we are seeing in some countries, uh, looking at news reports as of, you know, the recording of this show, um, that shows that there is some preliminary indications that the infection rate in China is slowing, that the infection rate in several other countries uh, is slowing, and that even the infection rates in some of our hot spots, such as New York uh, and Washington and LA, uh, actually show some, again, preliminary indications that that curve is flattening out. Now, it could just be you know, a lull in testing. There's kind of a two-week cycle between when tests occur, when results come back, and when we get new numbers and updates. So we're seeing a continuous update of the numbers as the test results roll in every day, day over day, seven days a week. So, you know, we, we can't say that we are, you know, over the hump on this. Um, by definition, you know, the, the medical and scientific de definition of having this, this illness under control and in air quotes here, handled, is when we see a, a decline in new cases continuously over a two-week or more period. Uh, that way we can see that it is, in fact, beginning to wane and that we are working our way through to, you know, the, the natural conclusion of this. So, you know, it, we, we've had this, this scenario where our leadership has created uh, some hurdles that we didn't need to have created uh, simply by the fact of, you know, playing this deny, distract, uh, it's not that important, you know, misinformation, uh, you know, all of this, all of this being given out has served to make the problem uh, a little bit worse and not better, you know, but we're not just limited to, you know, what has happened in terms of leadership in the fight against this disease. Some other things that have come out of the administration, again, showing this lack of uh, planning through and, and finding solutions and putting them in place. The administration delayed uh, allowing people without insurance or who had lost their insurance because they had lost their job as a result of the coronavirus to get uh, insurance coverage through the Affordable Care Act. That was uh, resisted and delayed for a period of time before, again, the overwhelming need indicated that it had to be done. Um, that, you know, is, is just, you know, un unconscionable that people would be allowed to suffer, especially the least able to, to withstand this illness, the poor, the disenfranchised, you know, the, the rural communities, those people who had minimal health care to begin with, who depended on the health care that came from their jobs, if they had health care through their jobs. You know, all of this just went to exacerbate and make this problem worse. The next area where the government made a problem worse than it needed to be was in the area of supplying needed medical equipment. 
uh, one of the things, and I've heard news reports on this from multiple sources on, on both sides and all the way around the circle, is, you know, the lack of, you know, respirator masks, the lack of ventilators, the lack of personal protective equipment or PPE needed by the medical teams that were on the front line of treating this illness. Uh, and, you know, not only was there a critical shortage of these and actually continues to be, even though it's getting better, uh, a lot of cases there's been profiteering and price gouging. You know, for example, the N95 face mask that medical people use. Uh, this is an item, and, and I know from my, my day work, you know, involved in safety, that, you know, is a item that costs less than a dollar a piece. Uh, some states have reported that because of, you know, bidding up in competition between the states and then, you know, the federal government through FEMA stepping in and bidding up to acquire these needed supplies, the price of those masks has gone from being, you know, 95 cents a piece to more than $4 a piece. Um, you know, and the same thing has happened with, you know, medical gowns and other protective equipment. Uh, the same thing, you know, has happened with respirators, you know, which have gone up two and threefold because of the shortage, because of the bidding wars that have happened. You know, the government should have early on stepped in and taken price control of these items. They should have federalized the production, you know, the Defense Appropriation Act, which is in place to do just that, to make sure that the federal government uh, can step in and work with private companies and engage them under contract to produce needed supplies. This has been done in the past through two world wars uh, and, you know, really achieve price stability and control over getting this equipment so that it can then be appropriately distributed where needed. Uh, and, you know, that too has been something that this government was very late to the party to, to do. It has, you know, only recently in the past few weeks uh, begun to put that process in place and make those, those changes occur. But again, you know, it's, it's three months into this pandemic when this response is being undertaken. Um, you know, the, there are reports that uh, indicate that, you know, even items that are in the national stockpile and the federal government has national emergency stockpiles of key medicines, equipment, uh, and materiel that can be needed in just these kinds of emergencies in quantities where the federal government can distribute them as needed to the states in the event of such a national emergency. The federal stockpiles on respirators, there are reports that have, have been circulating that says that some of the respirators in the national stockpile don't work, that they have not been maintained, that you know they have fallen into disrepair because contracts for the companies that do this work that maintain the inventory were not renewed. And again, this is a, a federal decision that was made at the top levels and this was not done. So that this just made, you know, again, a bad problem into a worse problem. So, you know, when we look at how we manage crisis, you know, again, it's three basic steps. 
own it, speak the factual truth, find your solutions, put them in place, and follow up and get them done. You know, repeat. <laughs> own it, speak the factual truth, find the solutions, and get them done. Step by step by step. This is how this process works. You know, so, you know, it, it is amazing to me that in, in this country, with all of the technology available, with all the manufacturing capacity that we have, even though a lot of manufacturing has gone offshore, America is still the greatest and best manufacturer on the planet. Nobody can beat us at manufacturing when we are focused to do it. All of this has, you know, failed us through a, a lack of or a failure of effective crisis management at the topmost levels of our government. So, you know, something to think about on that. We're going to take a break here. When we come back after our break, we're going to go and talk a little bit more about this. We're going to talk about not only the, the response that's happened, but some of the information and some of the news that's flowing about the coronavirus. And I, I want to particularly talk about one uh, in particular that has, has come around through the Internet. So we're going to take our break here. You're listening to Fire It Up. This is Steve. We'll be right back after this short break. There's a place in your heart And I know that it is love And this place came much brighter than tomorrow And if you really try You'll find there's no need to cry Yeah. 
Fire it up. This is Steve right here on WJMSRadio.com, and we're talking about the impacts and political fallout of the current COVID 19 coronavirus uh, epidemic that is moving across our country and just creating all kinds of holy havoc. Uh, first segment, we were talking about you know the response and how you manage in a crisis. Uh, one of the things that has come out of it, of course, is that you know a plethora of polls have been taken judging the response of not only the federal government but of you know President Trump's handling of the coronavirus coronavirus crisis. Excuse me. Uh, and you know what has been transpiring is uh, a couple of things. Um, one, uh, initially. You know, as as he moved and began to take a more firm control of the process, you know, putting the response team in place, putting Vice President Pence in charge of it, and having people like Dr. Fauci and, and other leading experts providing information to the American people uh, in a truthful and straightforward fashion, is that his poll numbers actually uh, took a bump upward. Uh, getting as high as 49% of the uh, American people approving of you know how this had been going. Um, however, as it has progressed over the, the past couple of months, uh, that percentage has slipped a little bit. Uh, on ABC News, Ipsos poll 
recently released uh, as of uh, a few days ago uh, before this the show is uh, recorded said only 47% of the American people approve of how President Trump has handled the coronavirus crisis in this country. That's a tongue twister, people. Uh, try saying it three times fast. Um, and that 52% of the, the public actually disapprove of how he has handled it. Uh, the latest rating in the survey shows that his support is backsliding. Um, in mid-March, more than half of the American people approved of it, uh, 55%, and 43% were in the uh, category of disapproving it. Now, you know, some of the things that have occurred, you know, the administration stepped up and moved forward with uh, better guidance on social distancing. He backed off from his early statement saying that this virus would be done and that you know everything would return to normal by Easter. That proved to be uh, less than truthful. And you know there have been just a series of you know continuing updates and uh, increases in you know the number of fatalities that have occurred, the number of hot spots in the country that have sprung up. Uh, you know, New Orleans is now uh, recording more cases per capita than even New York. Uh, New York continues to lead, actually, not only the country, but is one of the top three uh, hotspots in the world for coronavirus. And, you know, there has just been some, some really devastating information that has come out, uh, which is going to happen when you have a crisis of this magnitude. And again, you know, if you look at how the, some of the governors have been handling this, where they have been and realized that the best path is to be straightforward, to be factual, to be honest, and, you know, to, to you know, not try and sugarcoat uh, what's going on, such as, you know, the, the uh, daily briefings from New York Governor Cuomo, uh, Los Angeles Mayor Garcetti, uh, you know, the Washington State Governor Jay Inslee, uh, and now we're getting these same types of press conferences coming out of New Orleans and other locations where leaders, you know, at the governor level really have stepped up and decided that, you know, we need to give the American people the truth. You know, yes, we have a problem, but we are working on it. We are bringing our resources to bear. We will get through this. We will, um, you know, we will persevere. Um, you know, and President Trump do grew. I'm sorry, President Trump drew significant criticism for you know his initial reluctance in activating the Defense Production Act. Um, you know, and at the same time that he was not taking this action. You know, his medical team, his medical team was providing the numbers talking about, you know, how bad this could possibly get. You know, they're projecting that if, you know, America does everything perfectly, that we follow all the guidelines that, you know, we're supposed to follow, that, you know, the, the deaths from this in America could be, you know, from 100,000 to 240,000 people. 
Let that sink in for a second. Up to as many as a quarter million Americans may die from this disease, even if we do everything perfectly that we're being required to do. That's the magnitude of this, this epidemic in our country. That's the magnitude of what this administration has to deal with. So, you know, for the president to be offering false hopes, uh, pushing out on, you know, drugs that have not been tested or proven and have brutal side effects as potential cures and giving the American people a false sense of hope about this, you know, is again, a management failure. You know, there will be a vaccine, there will be treatments, but we have to get through to that point. Uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about those steps, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in a few minutes. Um, you know, so again, you know, it, it has just been really, really uh, problematic with how our government has responded to this president's popularity is accordingly taking a number of hits over it. You know, again, 47%, according to a political morning consult poll, uh, again, taken just a few days ago, 47% of the voters feel the administration is not doing enough to fight the virus. And 40% feel the administration uh, is doing for, is doing the right amount. Um, you know, two weeks ago, that 47% is up four points from, you know, two weeks ago. Uh, and the 39% uh, said it was doing the right amount. That has risen by 1%. One per, one and just as a reminder, we talked earlier in an earlier broadcast about polls. Um, you know, this was a poll that surveyed 559 adults. Uh, it was done April 1st and April 2nd. And it had a sampling error of plus or minus 4.8 percentage points. So if you remember from our segment on polls, you know, take those numbers with a grain of salt. It's a rather small sampling size. Um, but, you know, it does speak to the impacts of this on the, on the president's popularity and, you know, just what... Uh, is transpiring. So, you know, th this is a real problem, you know, with confirmed cases globally at one and a quarter million people uh, and, you know, the, the death rate globally again climbing, you know, people are rightly asking, you know, how is this going to end? When is it going to end? How do we, how will we get to that point? So, there's an article written, and it, it addressed this fact specifically. So there was an article written, and it addressed this fact specifically, and they came back with uh, nine different uh, points on what is going to transpire for us to get to the end of this epidemic uh, globally and, and probably by extension here in America. So you know, question one is how does this end? Um, a consensus is that one, this, this pandemic will end with the establishment of what is called a herd immunity. It's H-E-R-D, uh, think herd of animals, immunity. And what that is, is that when enough people in a community 
uh, have acquired this disease and achieved protection from it, uh, it creates an infertile field for the pathogen to continue to live on. Basically, it's when enough people have gotten this disease and survived it and have built up you know, an immunity to it, the disease can no longer spread effectively and essentially it just dies on the vine. So one of the ways that this is, is achieved is through immunization. And that is, you know, a vaccine is developed and, you know, wide, widely distributed and as a result, immunities build up and the disease can't take a foothold and basically the number of cases shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks till it goes, you know, to near zero. This is kind of the, the process that we go through annually when we do our flu shots. The idea is to get enough people immunized against the flu so that there isn't a fertile field for the virus to take hold and it basically dies on the vine. The second way that you get to this herd immunity uh, is a little more grim. Um, it comes, as I said, after a large portion of the community has been infected with the pathogen, pathogen and that large portion becomes resistant to it. So there is no place for the, the virus to take hold. And again, it, it withers and dies. Um, that you know, will occur over a long period of time and the numbers of people that you need to get to that point are substantial. Uh, some estimates are 60 to 75 percent of the population needs to be in that state in order for the disease to, to dissipate. The second question that the article posed was how do we manage until then? You know, right now we are doing the major things that need to be done to, you know, create and, and prevent the propagation of this illness throughout our country. Number one is this concept of physical distancing. Uh, where you know we avoid large crowds, we avoid gathering uh, in areas where there are a lot of people. Uh, we practice, you know, you know, whether it's wearing a mask or we practice some other way of of controlling the spray that comes from our breathing and our coughing and sneezing. And you know, we do our hand washing campaigns. We do all the things that we are being told now to do because that reduces dramatically the level of transmission of the disease from by physical contact and by contact on surfaces. Uh, the masks go to restrain the disease from spreading in the air, which recent science is telling us that this is another mechanism that the disease it uses to spread. So, you know, one of the questions this leads to is, so when will all of this, you know, lighten up? When will restrictions loosen? Well, you know, we should not have the expectation that life is going to return to pre-coronavirus normal uh, quickly. Uh, this is going to take a while. As I said earlier in the show, you know, effective vaccines are still at least 12 to 18 months out. So, you know, even though the, the infection rate and the herd immunity may take some effect and we will see a tapering off of cases, we are going to be dealing with this virus for quite a while. And that doesn't include the potential that it may come back in the fall, much like, you know, 
the regular flu does, you know, we get it, you know, in the springtime, we get it in the fall. Um, so we're going to, you know, be through this and it, it is going to become part of our new normal uh, in terms of what we have to do. You know, we may be released from, you know, uh, mandatory stay at home, but we may still need to practice physical distancing. We may still need to practice, you know, protecting against airborne transmission, continuing to wash our hands, use hand sanitizer, and so forth uh, for quite a while. Um, so one of the things that uh, Annalise Wilder-Smith, who is a professor of emerging infectious diseases at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, uh, she's recommending that restrictions stay in place until daily cases drop consistently over at least two weeks. And that's what I said, you know, a, a few seconds ago about how we can recognize as we are coming to the end of this tunnel, you know. Um, and the next question that leads to is, says, okay, then what? You know, and, and a group of U.S. health specialists, uh, including former Food and Drug Administrator Scott Gottlieb, uh, calls for, you know, once we get to that stage, that we can begin a gradual loosening of, you know, the, the restrictions, including schools and businesses would reopen, but gatherings may still be limited, you know. So that, you know, is something that we will see take hold once we start to see that we are turning a corner in this. Um, you know, but he, he, he cautions that, you know, households would need to reduce contact with schools, workplaces, or the public by 75%, um, you know, and that's as we move toward this herd immunity uh, situation that I mentioned earlier, you know, and the other thing is, you know, that we're going to have to significantly ramp up our testing rate. We're going to be needing to do at least 750,000 tests a week uh, nationwide. And, you know, it, and part of that is to find out who is infected, but it also determines, more importantly, it determines the boundaries of the infections, how far it has spread, how fast it is spreading. This is documented through the test results that medical professionals get back. Um, so... It, it, it leads us to raise the question of, you know, does it matter where we are? And, you know, yeah, it does. One of the things that has impacted the fact that China has seen to, you know, significantly flatten its curve uh, is in part based on the fact that it is a communist country, that it is a country under much more stringent control than the United States of America or other Western countries. It is much easier in China to, uh, to control movement, to uh, have more invasive surveillance, and um, you know, to do things like house-to-house -house mandatory fever checks. You know, these kinds of things, although important and although are good steps to reduce the illness, uh, the American people would have an absolute conniption, you know, if, you know, we were surveilled, you know, in our movements, if we left the house, 
you know, our movements were tracked and if we were where we were not supposed to be, we faced some kind of criminal penalties or if people came to your door once a week to take your temperature and the temperature of everyone in your household, you know, we have enough headache with getting people to complete the census, you know, and never mind the fact that, that officials are going to come to your house and, you know, basically do a health check on you, you know, periodically, you know. Um, the, another question raised was how long would the vaccine take? We've already talked about that. You know, it's at least, you know, 12 to 18 months away before we will see an effective vaccine against this, uh, this illness. So, you know, the, the earlier mentioned second path to herd immunity, you know, this is, again, where we have such a broad pool of people who have already gotten the disease. And as, as with, you know, most diseases, you know, remember, if, you know, from being a kid, if you had the measles as a child, the likelihood of you getting the measles as an adult is extremely small, almost near zero. Um, same, same process, um, you know, with this will occur. Although the portion of the population you know, exposed that need to establish that herd immunity isn't really known right now. Generally, um, you know, for diphtheria, uh, that percentage is 75% of the target population needs to have been infected in order for herd immunity to take place. 91% of that target population needs to be infected for herd immunity from measles. Uh, and that's based on historical references of the disease here in, in America. So, you know, it, it, it's still a lengthy and, you know, continuously changing landscape that we are facing. Our normal has been changed. There's going to be a new normal on the other side of this, no matter what transpires. Um, you know, but, you know, at the end of the day, we will get through this. Um, you know, we could get lucky, you know, and have this virus, you know, this current round of virus fade out as we get into summer in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, you know, just like there are way fewer, fewer cases of the flu in the summertime than there are in the wintertime. But we have to keep in mind that it could come back and our level of vigilance will need to remain high and remain alert for signs that this is, is returning so that we can address it quickly and effectively. So, you know, there is hope. We will get through this. You know, again, it's, it's all the same thing as we talk about each week. We have to be educated. We have to understand what we're facing. We have to understand what we need to do and then execute that. And, you know, we need to follow the you know, beneficial instructions from our medical communities and scientists as to what is the best thing to do. So, you know, there is hope. Let's not be discouraged. Let's hunker down, persevere, and we'll get through this. So we've covered a lot of information and uh, we're running up on the end of our hour. Uh, there are still some more things that I wanted to talk about, uh, but I think what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna roll those into next week's show where we get a chance to look at, you know, the facts and the fallacies and the conspiracy theories that are orbiting around, you know, this coronavirus epidemic that has hit our country 
and also some of the things that uh, the political implications, a, a little bit deeper dive into that. So we're going to uh, wrap our show. We won't have a call to action segment this week, but we will pick it up with uh, our show next week. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate it as always. This is Steve. You're listening to Fire It Up right here on WJMS Radio. Everybody, please stay safe, stay protected, stay healthy, and I will talk to you again in seven days. Thank you. Wherever you stand, calling every woman, calling every man. We're the generation we can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday, and we're already late.